to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. We trust that you will enjoy today's message and that it will encourage you to grow deeper in your relationship with Christ our Savior. Welcome to Shofar Christian Church here in uh, Joburg. This is the first week of our comeback series and uh, you are so welcome here. We believe that everyone deserves a second chance and that you're never too far, you're never too late to make a comeback and that all of us need a comeback in some area of our lives. I, I want to read you a story, an account in John. John was a, a guy who lived around the turn of the first century and he was an eyewitness to some of the most amazing things that happened in world history, things that have formed world history ever since. And he gives us, in his eyewitness testimony, he gives us a story of a woman who needs a serious comeback in her life, a woman who um, is really seemingly down and out with not much hope. And the interesting thing about it is there's so much wisdom for us. I mean, even though this is an account of an, of, of an ancient, of ancient history in a certain sense, there's so much wisdom for us in it. So much wisdom. So, and it, and it, what, what I love about this account, when I read it, is so true to human nature. And I, and I hope you'll, you'll see it when, when, when I read through it. Um, so I'm just going to read. It's up on the screen. I'm just going to read from uh, John 4, from verse 4. It says, Now he, that's Jesus, uh, had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near a plot of ground that uh, Jacob gave his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Sixth hour was 12 noon, right in the, in the heat of the day. Uh, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How is that you ask me for a drink? Uh, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. You can see she's kind of surprised that Jesus is even speaking to her. And uh, it goes on. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was, who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where, where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself? As did his sons and his flocks and herds. And Jesus answered her, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to come, keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, You are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have, uh, have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews claim that the place where what we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said, Believe me, woman, the time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. And the woman said, in verse 25, the woman said, I know Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. I speak to you, am he. Now, the reality is we're talking about making a comeback. We're talking about life change. And, and nowadays, I mean, that phrase, life change, is, is thrown around a lot more than probably ever before, right? People talk about life change. You know, they want to experience life change. Or they talk about a certain experience or event as life changing, right? And if you look at life change, if you look at... Um, how to change your life. You pretty much get two methods that people typically use to do life change, to change their lives. Okay? The first one we can call the ancient method. Okay, and what that was is 
uh, sort of in ancient literature and, you know, throughout the years. And even now in modern times, still, people would say, if you want to change your life, what you need to do is you need to exercise your rational mind and your strength of will over your passions, your, your disordered desires. So you have to, by strength, you have to exercise your will and, and, and overcome your passions and disordered desires that lead you astray, and then you can change your life. Okay. And interestingly enough, the modern method is almost exactly the opposite of that. The modern method of changing, as opposed to the ancient method, is you look inside of yourself, and you find your strongest passions and desires, and you embrace them. And that's how you change. And, and if you go and look at how people, I mean, even self-help books and stuff, you read, they, and they fall either into one of these two categories, or sort of a combination of the two, some other combination of the two. And in this account, we presented with a very different way, a very different way of life change. One that's not the ancient exercise your will, way of changing a life change, and one that's also not the modern embrace your passions way of changing your life. It's something very different. It's, it's grace, basically. Now, all of us, you know, we know about grace. You know, even those of us, you know, who are uh, not religious, you know, maybe we grew up in church, or even if we didn't grow up in church, we know the, the hymn, Amazing Grace, right? Maybe you did grow up in church and you had to sing the hymn, you know, stand next to your mother and sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And you look at your mom and say, what's a wretch, mom? <laughs> Are you a wretch, mom? <laughs> and you get an answer like, shut up and sing, boy. <laughs> but we know about grace and we know that it's supposed to be amazing, but we don't always understand why grace is supposed to be so amazing or what exactly grace is, Right? And I think this account of this woman and her interaction with Jesus shows us, gives us a glimpse, a powerful glimpse of what grace is. And, and I, I just want to hold this before you. <clears throat> if you look throughout the world, the entire world, the whole world, and you find people whose lives have genuinely been changed, and you ask them, how has your life been changed? Most of them are going to point back to this man. This very same Jesus that sat at that well and spoke to that woman. And they're going to say, that Jesus helped me change my life. And if he has changed so many lives, so radically, so profoundly, then maybe we would do well to listen to what he says about how to change your life. So, I'm going to just discuss the grace of God. Now, you might ask, okay, you know, what is grace and how can that help me change my life? Well, I'm so glad you asked because that's exactly what I was doing. You guys are so helpful. You ask all the right questions. You know, I love you guys. So I'm, I'm going to talk about the problem that grace solves, the process that grace follows, and the power that grace unleashes. Okay? The problem that grace solves, the process that grace follows, and the power that grace unleashes. So let's talk about the problem that grace solves. Now, those of you who, uh, who during the week watched the video sessions would have seen in the introduction the symptom, the, if I had to sum up the symptom of all of our problems actually, the main symptom in one word, I'd say it's separation. Separation. And we see that separation in this woman's life. And separation on all kinds of different levels. All kinds of different levels. And Jesus comes, and like I said in, 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 the, in the video, He breaks through all kinds of barriers, all kinds of degrees of separation that this woman had experienced in her life to get to this woman's heart, to get to her. Now, I'm just going to mention a few. Most of them I've mentioned in the video, so I'm, I'm, I'm just going to mention them very briefly. But the last one, um, I want to uh, stand a little, uh, still a bit longer at. The first one is sort of the gender barrier. In those days... You know, religious men didn't speak to women, and a rabbi certainly wouldn't speak to women. And, and you can see the surprise of this woman when Jesus, as a rabbi, speaks to her and said, no, I'm, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why, why, why are you even speaking to me? You know? But Jesus just breaks through those barriers. Um, also, there's the ethnic barrier. I mean, Jews and Samaritans, 
really didn't like each other. I mean, if a Jew was walking on one side of the road and a Samaritan came on that same side of the road, the Jew would walk to the other side of the road <laughs> and he'd walk on past the Samaritan. Some Jews were so bad, some of, especially the Pharisees, you know, the, the really religious guys. They were so bad, if a Samaritan shadow fell on them, they would go and wash themselves. <laughs> See, that's how serious, that's how serious the prejudice and the, and the hatred between them. I mean, it's, it's, it, it was a bit like, you know, you know, the Afrikaners and the Zulus, you know, in the old South Africa. I mean, there was like serious prejudice, serious hatred, bad stuff. I mean, we, we as South Africans, we know that. That's, that's our history, right? That's our broken and unfortunate and hurtful history that we're talking about there. Where, 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 where we also experienced much of that kind of thing. So we know that. We know those barriers. And we know how painful they can be. We know how problematic they can be. Even in the new South Africa, those barriers... Are still there. I mean, if we look around ourselves, we're, we're a rather mixed group. This is not usual. This is not normal. You go to most churches today, they'll either be black or they'll be white. What we have here is unusual. It's not the norm. Because there are ethnic, racial barriers. But Jesus breaks through those. And he enables us ultimately to break through them as well. Then there's also family separation. I mean, this woman has been married five times. And five times she's been separated from her husband. So the symptom of separation comes, it comes right up close into our very lives, into our very families, and it breaks families apart. It separates families. Um, and and yeah, let me just maybe mention this and stand still here, but marriage is supposed to be a covenant relationship. Now, what is a covenant relationship? We all actually know what a covenant relationship is or is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a permanent relationship that is unbreakable. Right? When you make a covenant with someone, it's still death do us part. And you get two kinds of relationship. The one is covenant relationship, where it's like a free giving of yourself and a permanent giving of yourself, and an unconditional giving of yourself in covenant, in, into family. You make someone your family, either through something like marriage or adoption. Marriage is uh, when you make someone your family that's, oh, well, hopefully not your family member, you know, hopefully not a brother or sister or a close relative, you know. <laughs> but then you extend family relationships to them when you, when, they get, when you get married to them, and they become your family. The same with adoption. You, you extend family relations to a child that is not your biological child. So you make a covenant with them. So we understand what covenant is. But the other kind of relationship that you get is commercial relationship. Almost all other relationships, if you think about it carefully, are commercial relationships. Now, what are commercial relationships? It's the kind of relationship I have with my hairdresser. <laughs> Melinda's too busy, you know. It's, She's got too many clients. She doesn't have room for me. But go to Melinda. She's a very good hairdresser. But, but your hairdresser, you have pretty much a commercial relationship. You pay your hairdresser, and they cut your hair. But if you can, you know, if, if you cut your hair in Cresta, you know, at 150 Rand, and then you discover, but, you know, in the little, you know, center, you know, just around the corner from you, which is much closer, you can pay 90 Rand to have your hair cut. I mean, Probably, and just as well, then probably you're going to go to, to this new little center and say, well, it's closer, it's cheaper, it's just as good. In other words, it's not a permanent relationship. It's, it's a give and take relationship. I give money, I receive a haircut. It's a commercial relationship. It's a commercial relationship. And it's not permanent. Now, here's the thing. Sociologists who have studied society have found that the commercial relationships, I mean, and there are so many of them, and, and everything has become commercialized so that even the relationships that are supposed to be covenant relationship relationships are becoming commercialized. In other words, the commercial way of thinking has infiltrated everything so that as modern people are losing our ability to have covenant relationship and, and, and even family has become a commercial relationship. It's like, you know, I'll marry you, you be my wife, I'll be your husband, but you know, if I'm not happy with the services and the goods that you're delivering, and I can get those goods and services somewhere else, you know, a better product, 
I'm out of here. I'm going to exchange you like, uh, you know, I do my grocer, you know. If someone else has a better special, I'm going to go somewhere else. And, you know, isn't that so? Isn't that what's happening in our society? All relationships are becoming commercialized. And therefore, it's all about what can I get out of it? And it's no longer permanent. And there's this separation. There's this breaking up. And, and the problem is it hurts us. It really does hurt us. If we're honest with ourselves, it, it can hurt very deeply when that separation happens. Because it, we experience it as rejection. We experience it as rejection. And not only do we experience it re- as rejection, but the people that we separated from usually experience it as rejection as well. And it can be really terrible. And then there's also social separation. I mean, why does this woman come at 12 noon at the heat of the day? And she had to walk a few kilometers to get to the, to the well. All the other ladies came early in the morning, in the cool of the morning, and they were social. The problem was, because of the lifestyle she lived, she was a social outcast. Because of the what was considered immoral in this religious society in which she lived, she was rejected and ostracized. And everyone was saying, no, we don't want you around us, and we certainly don't want you around our children, because you're a bad example. And I mean, there's, there's, there's this thing which, where, where Jesus says, you know, not only have you had five husbands, but the one you have now is not your husband. In other words, by implication, he's someone else's husband. And that someone else probably also came, you know, in the mornings with the other ladies to draw water. And it would have been very awkward, you know, for this lady who had stolen this other lady's husband to come and, you know, draw water with her. So she said, there's, there's social separation. She's a social outcast. But here's the... The, the pinnacle. Here's the, the ultimate separation. <clears throat> Jesus says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. In other words, spiritual separation. We get separated. The ultimate symptom is we get separated from God. We no longer know God. We were talking about, come now is the time to worship and worshiping God. And, and, and some of us don't really understand or know what that means even. Because we've been separated from a God that we should know but don't know anymore. We don't know Him. There's that spiritual separation, a deep-seated spiritual separation that leaves us feeling lost, that leaves us feeling without foundations, without anchor, blown and tossed in the wind and the waves. And um, the reason, one of the main reasons why we feel like that often is the same reason the Samaritans do. Um... The Samaritans only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, the, 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 the law of Moses, basically. And the, the rest of the Old Testament, they, they rejected. And, and so often, in other words, they, they chose certain portions of the truth they accept, and other portions they rejected. And so often we relate to, to the truth like that as well. We, we, we treat the truth as though it's a buffet meal. And you can sort of walk through and pick and choose, I, I like this portion of the truth, and I like that portion of the truth. This portion of the truth is uncomfortable, don't like it, doesn't agree with my system, I reject that. This truth about God I like, this truth about God don't like so much. Oops. <laughs> this truth about God I don't like so much. Okay? And here's the problem. Here's the problem. And this is very important that you get this. Okay, here's the problem. If you only accept those parts of the truth, those parts about, of the truth of God that you agree with and that you like, and reject those parts of the truth about God that you dislike, then it's not the truth you believe but yourself. And that aggravates that separation. And so often we like that. And I think one of the challenges thrown out to us this morning is, Are we going to embrace the truth and accept the truth even when it is uncomfortable and even when it's difficult? It takes courage. It takes humility to do that. But that's the only way, really, we can overcome these problems. Um, But what is the cause? If, if, If separation is the symptom, separation, degrees of separation, all kinds of different levels, if that's the symptom, what is the cause? And Jesus, interestingly enough, says the cause is exactly what Lauren was talking about cause is thirst our desires what we want what we long for 
our desires and how we try to satisfy them. He says, those who drink of this water will thirst again. Those who drink of this water will guarantee thirst again. So the cause is, now, now that metaphor of water is so beautiful and so powerful actually. I mean, water is one of the most, you know, abundant substances in the world. 70% of the earth is covered in water. Our bodies are at least 50% water. You know that. And that's why we crave water. That's why we thirst for water. And when you are slightly thirsty, it can be a little uncomfortable. When you are very thirsty, it can be very difficult to handle. When you are dehydrated and totally parched, it can be positively painful and excruciating. And, and we crave water. And, and when you get thirsty, actually, the, the main thing, the only thing actually that you really get thirsty for is water. You get water. And, and, and the amazing thing is when you're really parched, when you're really dehydrated, and that water hits your mouth, not only is it amazingly strengthening, it's also sweet. It tastes so good. And what Jesus is saying, you have a desperate need for something, and I want to give you that something that will strengthen you, and it will taste so sweet, you'll want more of it. And it will really satisfy you. Now, now, here's the thing. Think about, let's just contrast Water with alcohol. You know, beer, you know, that has, how much percent alcohol does beer have? 8%? 4, 4.5. Isn't that, okay. <laughs> Trust the German guy who brews his own beer to know <laughs> how much alcohol Or wine that has, what, 12%? Or, you know, something like that. So, so a lot of, of you, know, per, you know, percentage per volume of of wine would be water, actually. But there would be all kinds of other stuff in and amongst others, 12% alcohol. Now, when you drink wine or beer or any alcoholic drink, so it's water mixed with alcohol. And it does. If it's, if it's cold, it quenches your thirst for a while. But alcohol actually dehydrates you. You know that. And then, it quenches your thirst for a while, but what happens then? You become thirsty again, and you have to go back for more. And that's what Jesus, whoever drinks this water will thirst again. In other words, if you take water and you mix any impurities, you know, anything else that other than water, it actually won't quench your thirst. Or it will quench your thirst for a while, but it will cause you to become thirsty again, so you'll have to come back for more. It's, it's like, you know, the other day I saw, um, they say you must never shop when you're hungry. You know, I, I hadn't eaten all day, and you know, I, I, my wife said I must go and, and do some shopping on my way home. And, and they had cheese curls on special at checkers and I walked past and my my um, my discipline failed me and I bought a pack of cheese snacks and, 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 and as soon as you start eating you can't stop because they put MSG in it right you, you all know MSG I mean mothers hate MSG because you know it, it makes you want more you know and the more you eat the more you want and it's like the water of this world. Jesus says, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. It's like the water of this world has spiritual MSG that just wants you to it, it, it quenches your thirst for a while, but then it inflames your thirst and you want actually more. It doesn't ultimately satisfy. So that's, that's the, the problem that grace addresses. It quenches our thirst and it solves our problem of separation. What is the process that grace follows? Three things. Grace exposes our addictions, it, um, it overcomes our evasions, and it replaces our idols. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Note that Jesus seems to rudely and randomly change the subject. Because on the one hand, he's talking about, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water I give will never thirst again. And then she says, well, give me this water. And then he says, go and call your husband and come back. What has that got to do with anything? It seems like he's just randomly changing the subject. But he's not. He's not. He's saying to us, he's saying, this woman understands the water on a physical level, quenching a physical thirst. But Jesus is saying, no, there's a deeper thirst I'm talking about here. There's a deeper thirst. There's a deeper need. There's a deeper desire. It's what you're trying to find in men. That's what I'm talking about here. And we all have that. We all have that. And <clears throat> you see, Jesus, 
he, he, um, he's saying to her, you've had five husbands. In other words, those deep, that, that deep soul thirst that you have. And all of us have it, if we're honest with ourselves. And all of us try and meet it in a different way. But that deep soul thirst that you have, if you try and drink from the waters of this world to quench that soul thirst, you'll always have to come back for more. If you try and quench that, thirst, that soul thirst with any water except the living water that Jesus gives, you'll always have to come back from it. It will never completely satisfy you. It will never completely quench your thirst. And, and actually, what it does, what it does is it makes us addicts. It makes us addicts. We all become addicted to something to try and fill this void on the inside, to try and quench this deep soul thirst. We become addicts. And whatever we're addicted to ends up controlling our lives. Just like men control this woman's life, ultimately. And you become a slave to it. You become a slave to it. Um, and here's what happens. Grace comes. Jesus comes. And through His grace, He exposes our addictions. And we don't like it. And we respond exactly like this woman. Isn't that so? Isn't that what happens when the things that we need and cannot go without are exposed? Isn't that what ex- exactly what happens when, 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 when an, uh, that raw nerve is touched? That, that, that sensitive place, is, is, you know, someone puts his, their finger on it? Now Jesus is putting His finger here on a deep need that this woman cannot control. And what does she do? She tries to evade it. Oh, I see you're a prophet. The woman's very sharp. She doesn't miss much. <laughs> I see you're a prophet, you know. And then what does she do? She goes religious on her. Oh, you Jews say that Jerusalem is a place to worship. But us Samaritans, we've been taught that this mountain, Mount Gerizim, is the right place to worship. It's the, it's the religious debate of our time. What do you say? You obviously have a, you're a prophet. You obviously have an inside track on this. What do you say about this? And, and don't, we, don't we so easily do that? And when our deepest needs, and our, because it makes us vulnerable. When our deepest needs are exposed, it makes us vulnerable. It must, makes us feel exposed. And we want to hide. And we were back in the Garden of Eden, like Adam and Eve, you know, trying to hide amongst the trees and cover ourselves with fig leaves. Our knee-jerk reaction is to hide. And so often we hide behind religion and all kinds of religious debates. Isn't that so? I mean, I see so much of myself in that. And I'm sure you'll see some of yourself in it as well. But you know, in His grace, Jesus will not allow us to get away with our evasion. He loves us too much to allow us to get away with it. And grace doesn't only expose our addictions, it overcomes our evasion. Because as long as we're evading the problem, we cannot receive the solution to the problem. As long as we fail to be honest with ourselves about our addictions and the things that control our lives, we can never solve those problems. And we're stuck. We cannot make a comeback. We cannot experience life change. The first step is for grace to to, to overcome our evasion and to help us to admit, yes, you're right. That is a problem in my life. This thing is controlling my life. I am addicted. I cannot go without it. And then, grace replaces our idols. Notice, Jesus seemed to change the subject, but He didn't. This woman tried to change the subject, but ironically she failed. Because she talks about worship. And ironically, that is exactly the problem. Because here's the thing, whatever you're addicted to, Whatever you look towards to quench your soul thirst, whatever you make the ultimate thing in your life to give you your ultimate fulfillment, that thing is your God. That is the very thing you're worshipping. Hello. That might surprise some of you. Us as modern people don't like to think of our problems and the things that are controlling our lives and the things that we're addicted to as a worship problem. But it is. Whatever you look towards to find your ultimate fulfillment, Mm. that thing is your God. That thing is your idol of choice. 
That's why I said Lauren was preaching my sermon just now. <clears throat> Whatever you look to for soul satisfaction, that thing is your God, your idol. The, the thing that you cannot live without, that thing is your true God. What is that thing in your life that you say, if I lose this, I can't go on anymore. If I lose this, I'm done. If I lose this, it'll crush me. For, for this woman was meant. When she lost one, she had to go for another. When she lost that one, she had to go for another. When, when that one divorced her and rejected her, she had to find a replacement. Because she couldn't go without men. She was trying to find soul satisfaction and quench this deep soul thirst by, with men. And so many, so many of us do that. We, we try and find in relationship. If, if someone I love, and I'm in love with, loves me back, That'll quench the soul first. And you know what? It won't. It won't. If you... Here's the thing. Here's the thing. I mean, no other human being can carry that weight of expectation and that pressure of satisfying you at that level. No one can. And if you make them your God, make them your idol and put all of that expectation for that deep need and soul thirst on them, it'll crush them. So in, any, in other words, whatever you, anything outside of the true God, outside of Jesus, that you make your God, that you try and find soul satisfaction in, you will crush it and it will crush you. Because... Because if, if, if you get it, it won't fulfill you. It won't. That's what this woman discovered time and time and time again. If, if, you, if you get it, it won't fulfill you. And if you lose it, it will crush you. Because you make it everything. In other words, the problem is that we make bad things, like drugs, heroin. We, make, we try and find our soul satisfaction in that. Or neutral things, like money. We make our God and we try and find ourselves for satisfaction in that. Or even good things like marriage or, or, or relationship. We try and find our fulfillment, our ultimate fulfillment in that. But the problem is, even when you make good things, ultimate things, they become idols. And on the one hand, they will disappoint you, even when you, when, when you get them. And on the other hand, they will crush you when you lose them. It'll destroy you. It'll destroy you. The only one that you can safely put in the ultimate place in your life and look to for your soul satisfaction is Jesus. Amen. Because He works by grace. You don't have to earn it. And He actually will satisfy you when you get it. And He won't crush you because He won't lose you. Or, let's rather say, He won't lose you. Here's just a little challenge, and I think the story about the house that Lauren shared so beautifully illustrates this. If God doesn't have your attention, He will start messing with the things that do have your attention. <laughs> Amen. give that ultimate attention to anything except God, God will in His grace not allow you to get away. He, he, will, he, will, he will fight your idols. He will conquer your idols. Yeah, sure. And He will liberate you from your idols because those idols, without you realizing it, what you worship keeps you captive. Mm. What, is, what, you, what you worship, what, what you make your God, what you find your ultimate satisfaction in, it keeps you captive and, 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 and God has to destroy it. To liberate you from it. And it's the grace of God that sets you free. So, He replaces our idols. Um, so, your idols control you, and, and, and it will destroy you, and you will destroy it. Just think, let's, just, let's just think of a few examples. What, what if you make money your idol? The problem is you'll never have enough. It'll never satisfy you. You'll always want more, and you'll always be afraid of other people taking what you do have. And you live in constant fear. What if you make power your idol? 
oh, I, I, I want power so I can control people. You'll never have enough power. You always feel out of control. You always feel insecure. You always feel like you need more power and more control over people. And it will destroy your relationships. It will destroy your life. Because you're going to try and control everyone and everything. And you can't. What if you make intelligence your God? You'll never feel intelligent enough. you always feel like a fraud on the verge of being found out. It's true. It's true. What if you make the claim of people? Your idol, your God. You'll never have enough of it. You'll never feel like people love you enough. You'll always be disappointed and angry at them for not loving you more. Not acknowledging you more. And you'll separate yourself from them. You'll separate them from you. You'll break down those relationships. What if you make beauty your God? You'll never feel beautiful enough. You'll always need more. You always have to go for some more Botox injections. You'll have to go for some more implants or hairdos or I, I don't know what. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even try. You know? <laughs> so. Um, Here's the other thing that I also just want you to think about. Whatever you make your idol, it won't only hurt you, it will hurt you. Now just think of this woman. Those five divorces must have devastated her. She must feel so rejected, so disillusioned that she doesn't even get married to the sixth one. But Jesus says, you've been married to five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. By implication, he's someone else's husband. Not only did it hurt her, it hurts someone else. Yeah. That woman, whose husband it really is, and, and, and her children, because in those days they didn't have contraception, so they had many children. That woman's now a widow, and those children are now orphans, because this woman, in her hurt, had stolen their husband, their father. Hurting people hurt people. We don't only hurt ourselves through our idols, we hurt other people through our idols. So, the point I'm trying to make, and that's my third point, is that Jesus is the only one that you can safely, because of His grace, put in the ultimate place in your life. So let's, so we, we spoke about the problem that grace solves, and then the process that grace follows. Now let's talk about the power that grace unleashes, and, and this is the exciting part. This is the exciting part. Um, we sometimes miss. In, in, in the, almost towards the end, Jesus says to this woman, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. Those who worship the Father must worship Him in spirit and truth. For the Father is... What's He doing? Seeking. He's seeking such to worship You see, the power of grace is ultimately, when you find it, you find you discover it's not that I was searching for it, it was searching for me. It's not that I was looking for Him, He was looking for me. And when I find Him, I discover actually, it, it was He that found me. And it's like the Samaritan woman, she just comes to the well, that Jesus was waiting there for her. And Jesus initiated the conversation. And you might be sitting here in church thinking, oh, I'm looking for God. Even when we're ignoring God, He's looking for us. He's searching for us sure. to find us. That's grace. But not only that, not only that, Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God, mm. and the one who is speaking to you would have asked Him and given you a living word. You see, grace is a gift. Grace is a gift. What does that mean? How can you fail to receive a wage? By not working for it, right? How can you fail to receive a gift? Only your pride. Only your pride can prevent you. Oh, I don't take handouts. And you leave it on the table. 
I only receive stuff that I've earned, that I've worked for, that I deserve. Grace is a gift. And here's the thing. If it's a gift, if it truly is a gift, then it's radically egalitarian. And then it explains why this woman can receive it. This woman who totally doesn't qualify. She's the wrong, wrong gender. She's the wrong ethnicity. She's got the wrong morality. She's, she's a social outcast. She doesn't. She's separated from God. I mean, if anyone doesn't qualify, then it's this woman. And yet, and yet, and yet, Jesus offers her this gift. Because it's a gift, she doesn't have to earn it. I can, I can just imagine her, when Jesus starts talking to her, and she says, you know, you're a Jewish rabbi, I'm a Samaritan, why are you even talking to me? I can just imagine her thinking, thank goodness he doesn't know about my marriage situation. <laughs> <laughs> And then when Jesus asks, go fetch your husband and come back, you can almost see the color draining yeah. out of her face. <laughs> oh no. And she tries to sort of be evasive and say, uh, 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 I don't have a husband. And what she says is exactly true, but exactly not the point. <laughs> she thought she could still sort of keep that under wraps, you know, sweep it under the carpet. And Jesus shows her, I already knew about that. When I offered you the gift, I already knew. Yeah. I offered you this gift knowing what kind of life you were living? Because it's a gift. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to deserve it. You don't have to qualify for it. It's radically egalitarian. It doesn't privilege the privilege. If it were based on intelligence, then more intelligent people would have an advantage. If it was based on, you know, the goodness of your lifestyle, then people with a better upbringing would have an advantage. If it was based on any kind of deserving inside of you, then some people would have an advantage over others. But if anything, because it's a gift, those who are deserving, those who are capable, actually, it's more difficult for them to receive. Isn't it? Because we're so used to, people who are capable are so used to earning things, working for things because they can, because they're so capable. They don't want to receive it as a gift. Can you see how radically egalitarian it is? And, and here's the thing. Once you receive it, it makes you a person of grace too. Doesn't it? Think about this. Think about this. Think about Jesus' disciples. Okay, he had many disciples, but he had 12. whom we called apostles who traveled everywhere with him. So we know at least those 12 were with him. Yet at the well he's alone. And it says his disciples went into town to buy food. Now, how many disciples does it take to buy food? <laughs> that, that's, that's not the introduction line of a joke. <laughs> how many blondes does it take to change a light bulb? <laughs> how many grown men does it take to go and buy food? Not 12. Why did Jesus send all of them away? Because they still didn't get the grace of God. Like Jesus did. They would have rejected this woman just like her society did. They would not have ministered God's grace and God's love to her like Jesus did. You see that? But once you've received that grace, it makes you a person of grace. Because you know, I don't deserve anything I've received. So it doesn't matter that the next person doesn't deserve it. You can't deserve it. It's a gift. That's grace. Can you see how powerful this is? Can you see how beautiful this is? Can you start turning your eyes onto Jesus and look into His wonderful face and see that glory and grace that He gives? Now, um, <laughs> some of you Joe Burgers are going to say, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. This, this nonsense about free gifts and so on. I don't fall for it. I get at least half a dozen emails in my inbox every day telling me I've won the UK lottery or some other rich relative of mine in the US has died and left their fortune to me or all kinds of stuff. Like, I, I, if, if it looks too good to be true, it usually is. I don't fall for that. Nothing is free. Someone, I mean, there's always some other helpful person on the other side 
and you just have to give your bank details to them and then they'll pay over this great fortune to you. I don't fall for that. Someone always has to pay. There are no free lunches. I mean, we, we Joburgers are a bit skeptical like that, aren't we? No, it's true, it's true, right? Because we've been scammed so many times. You know? You develop a thick skin and you start becoming a bit cynical. Nothing is for free. And you know, nothing's for free. I mean, think about this fees must fall um, movement, right? The students demanding free tertiary education. The problem, one of the problems is there's no such thing as free tertiary education. Someone always has to pay. I mean, the lecturers have to get a salary. You need the study resources. What actually they mean by that is, we don't want to pay for it. We want someone else to But someone has to pay, right? It must be free for us, but it's not free for someone else. Someone always has to pay. That's just the reality of this life. So when you say any free gift, I'm like, hang on. This sounds too good to be true. This sounds like a scam. You're right. Someone always has to pay. Someone always has to pay. Jesus says, Believe me, woman, the time is coming. Which is a, unfortunately a bad translation. Literally in the Greek it says, The hour is coming. And, and if you go and search for the word the hour in John's Gospel, you'll find it always, always refers to Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. Always. The hour is coming. Now, I mean, you say, you Samaritans say Mount Gerizim is the place to worship. We Jews, who by the way, we're right and you're wrong, say that Jerusalem, now Jerusalem is the place to worship. But, the hour is coming That'll make all temples obsolete. Where you'll no longer have to worship in Jerusalem or in Mount Jerusalem. But you'll worship in spirit and in truth. What, what is he saying? He's saying, I'm going to do something in that hour. In that hour. That'll set you free to worship me and worship only me. And be free in worshiping me. I'm going to pay the price on the cross. And if you go, if you go to John 19, and, and you can go and you can make a note of this and, and go and look it up in your Bibles. John chapter 19, verse 28. Jesus hangs on the cross. He's being executed. Not for anything he's done. He's being executed for what we done, for what we did. He's hanging on the, on the cross and he says, I am thirsty. And we know it's not just physical thirst. Because before that he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's the judgment of God that's coming on him as a cosmic thirst. And he experienced the ultimate thirst so that we wouldn't have He experienced the deepest, most crushing thirst of all. So that we would not have to. So that our thirst can be Grace is free, but it's not cheap. It cost him everything. It cost him everything. Now think about this. You were so guilty that he had to die for you. But you were so loved that he was glad to die for you. That is Jesus. And this is this man speaking to this woman. And he, and he, and he says... The water, the living water I'll give you will, whoever drinks of the living water I give will never thirst again. I mean, that's a massive promise. Not will sometimes, you'll never thirst again. In all of eternity. In other words, what I will give you will permanently quench your deepest thirst. But not only that, but it will come, become inside of you a, a spring welling up to eternal life. In other words, I will not only quench your thirst, I will give you the source of that which quenches your thirst. The living water. The Holy Spirit. And that's why at the end, she says, I know the Messiah, who is called Christ, will come. Now the word Christ means anointed one. Anointed with what? With the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the living water. I'm not only going to quench your thirst, but I'm going to put the source of that quenching right on the inside of you. So it bubbles up inside of you like a fountain, like a spring. 
the very source of ultimate quenching will live inside you. I, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, will give you my anointing, my Holy Spirit. And He'll live inside you. And here's the thing. He'll, he'll first change your desires. Not all the other, the ancient or the modern method of trying to change from the outside in. But He'll actually change your desires on the inside and then satisfy your deepest desires. Okay, so in closing, there are three ways to change. One, the ancient way, the exercise your willpower way, where you suppress your disordered desires. You suppress your disordered desires. The second one is the modern way, the embrace your passions way, where you embrace your disordered desires. Now the problem is, neither of those ways solves the problem. Because it doesn't change the desires. You can only suppress, through the ancient method, your desires for so long. And then your desires will overcome you. But embracing your disordered desires is also not the solution. It actually doesn't change you. You're still a captive to your desires. You're still a slave to your desires. The only solution is the grace method. By which Jesus gives you His Holy Spirit. who actually changes your disordered desires. Brings them into life and then satisfies those right desires. Quenches your deepest thirst. And He's the only one I know who can do that. Jesus is the only one I know who can do that. Would you like Him to do that for you? Would you like to be free from the tyranny of your disordered desires? Would you like to be free from the idols under which you suffer? And turn your eyes unto Jesus and experience that freedom. He alone can give.